If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. It was October of 2017 that a remarkable discovery was made. The first interstellar object detected passing through our solar system. As such, it was given the name 1I slash 2017U1. Kind of boring. So it got another name, Umuamua, which is a Hawaiian word, uh, which means, I, I think, scout. But what was this object? Because was obviously significant in that it was the first detected interstellar object, but it was significant for another reason, because it behaved so strangely. And there were aspects uh, of this object that, that we couldn't quite explain. For example, it seemed to be accelerating. What would be causing that? Even its shape, initially described as cigar shape, turns out that it was probably actually more flat, more pancake shape than, than cigar shape. But of course, it has, uh, it has sped along its way, and it's not there for us to study anymore, so we're left to try to ascertain what we can from the data about what it was. And that's where our next guest has caused uh, quite a stir in the uh, scientific community. But he's, he's certainly got the, uh, the, the data to back him up. He's published a couple of different uh, papers on this, and has now written a book laying out his theory for why this object was constructed, built, if you will. The book is called Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. Joining us on the line is Professor Avi Loeb. He is Frank B. Baird, Jr., professor of science at Harvard University, director of the Institute for Theory and Computation, and founding director of the Black Hole Initiative. Professor Loeb, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so it's interesting now, and as I say, I mean, you, you've you've written the papers, the the equation dense papers for the scientific community, making your point. The, the book, I think, is about taking this to a broader audience. Uh, talk a bit about why you felt compelled to to write this book to make your case. Well, for two reasons. Uh, first, I wanted to summarize uh, the arguments why this might be an artificial object, because you know, after I wrote my scientific papers, there were a few other suggestions, but uh, they all uh, have uh, significant flaws. I mean, th these were suggestions that it may be natural in origin, and we can discuss the details. But I wanted to give the broader picture. And the second uh, reason I wrote the book was uh, to make the point that the scientific community is not really open-minded in the way that it should, uh, in terms of reflecting also the public's interest. And, uh, you know, the, the question of whether Oumuamua was an artificial object or a natural object is of great interest. It will have a, a huge impact on uh, society. And uh, I call it Oumuamua's wager. And you cannot just dismiss the possibility of an artificial origin because it has huge implications. And therefore, what we should do is collect as much evidence as possible on objects like it. And what that means is 
next time we see an object as weird as Oumuamua that doesn't look like a comet or an asteroid, we should uh, contemplate sending a spacecraft with a camera that will take a close-up photo of it. Because they say that the picture is worth a thousand words. Mm-hmm. In my case, uh, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. Is, is this particular object, is it, is it gone? Is, is it too late for us to catch up to it? Is it, is it too far gone for even any of our probes to, to yeah. be rerouted? Yeah, when we discovered it, it was already moving away from us faster than any rocket that we can launch. Uh, and by now, it's a million times fainter than it was close to us. And so we can't really detect it with our telescopes. But uh, we discovered it after looking, surveying the sky for a few years with the Pan-STARRS uh, telescope in Hawaii. And uh, that means, you know, there is no reason to expect us to have been at a privileged time during that period. And so if you continue to search uh, within a few years, we'll, we'll find another one. You know, when I go to the kitchen and I see an ant, I get alarmed because I know that there must be many more ants out there. And so uh, actually in less than three years, there would be a much more sensitive telescope uh, called the Vera Rubin Observatory that will monitor the sky and could detect an object like that every month. And so we will have many more of the same uh, type. Uh, And so we should simply uh, try to get as much data as possible on the future ones. The, the only reason we might not get more data is if we follow what the, the most scientists are saying. It's just rocks. They know it in advance. You know, it's similar to uh, the philosophers during Galileo's time. They didn't want to look through Galileo's telescope because they knew that the sun moves around the earth. What convinced you or what, what suggests to you? That, that this could be something that was, was constructed, that was built, and it's not just a rock or frozen hydrogen or, or something like that? Yeah, I should say that uh, I didn't have any agenda to start with. Uh, you know, it's just the evidence on this object right. that looked weirder and weirder as time went on. You know, and initially I did assume that it must be just like a rock uh, we, we find in the solar system and that, that came from another star. I mean, that was the natural thing to assume. But then... Uh, the anomalies that you mentioned uh, showed up, and also there was there was clearly no gas around it. The, the Switzer Space Telescope looked for any carbon-based molecules, so it was clearly not a comet, for sure. And be, because initially, of course, all the astronomers said, oh, it's a comet, but definitely not a comet. And to get the push that it exhibited, you needed about uh, 10% of the mass of this object to evaporate, and and, and there wasn't anything. Uh, I should say that just a few months ago, you know, in September 2020, there was another object discovered by the same telescope uh, that was given the astronomical name 2020SO. And that object also showed an excess push uh, away from the sun by reflecting sunlight and uh, no cometary tail. Turns out that this object uh, was actually a rocket booster that was launched into space in uh, 1966 as part of a lunar lander mission. And uh, we know that we produced this object artificially. It uh, had very thin walls, and that's why it exhibited a push by reflecting sunlight. Uh, So we know that it's artificial because we produced it. We don't know who produced Oumuamua. 
terms of its its shape, because it was initially reported as a cigar-shaped object, but it, it more has come to light recently suggesting that perhaps it was flatter, that maybe pancake-shaped would be a, a better way to describe right. it. And, and that would be interesting because we, we don't see a lot of natural pancake-shaped objects. Right. So, in fact, the original discovery paper already suggested that. And uh, when I published my paper saying maybe it's a light sail, maybe it's a very thin uh, flat object that is pushed by reflecting sunlight, the referee of the paper uh, added that, uh, in fact, the discovery paper suggested that it's a flat ob- object. And the reason it was suggested originally was because based on the way it tumbled, it looked as if it's most likely flat. Uh, but a, a later paper that was published in 2019 uh, analyzed the reflected light as it was tumbling and concluded at the 90% confidence that it, it must be pancake-shaped. And yes, you're right that it's very unusual to have a pancake-shaped uh, object. The reason that it was confused for a cigar is if you imagine a piece of paper that looks like a pancake tumbling in the wind, then when you look at it sideways, it looks like a cigar. I mean, it's an elongated the area that you see projected uh, along the line of sight looks like an elongated object. So that's what gave the inspiration for this artist to draw a cigar. But it's just the area that you see at one instant. And as the object is tumbling, of course, you see different sides of it. And that's when people try to fit that, that's why they uh, concluded that it's, it's most likely flat. And uh, yeah, so that's another very weird property. And there was also the uh, frame from where it came, you know, that it's called the local standard of rest, which is the frame that you get to when you average over the random motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. It's sort of like the local parking lot. And this this object was at rest in that local standard of rest. Only one in 500 stars is so much at rest as this object was. And you know, it, it was just like a buoy sitting at rest on the surface of the ocean, and the solar system, like a giant ship, bumped into it and gave it a kick. And, you know, why would it be in that special frame? And, you know, that's very unlikely. That was another anomaly of this object. You, you mentioned the, the reaction from the scientific community. And, and, I mean, given your stature, your resume, and it speaks for itself, so they can't ignore you. But there, there just seemed to be right. a real reluctance to... To, to sort of, you know, think outside the box, right? So what, what was, how right, do you perceive right. how this was all received by, by the scientific community? Yeah, there is a reluctance to think outside the box. I can illustrate that with uh, an anecdote that I mentioned in my book that, you know, I, vis- I used to visit this university town uh, many times, and they always put me in a hotel with slanted ceiling, and I could hardly stand up when I take a shower. And uh, at some point, I decided to ask my host, why is there so, so much, so limited space in, in you know, the housing uh, within that town? And, and they said, well, there is this rule uh, from many centuries ago that you are not allowed to build a building that is taller than the church. And as a result, there is not much space here. And I said, okay, why don't you make the church taller? And they said, we haven't thought about that. <laughs> so this illustrates that people often are confined within, <laughs> uh, they don't think outside the box. You know, they could have made the church taller and then they would have more, more space. And now coming back to, to the question of uh, Oumuamua, um, I think the reluctance um, 
you know, is, is basically because it takes people out of their comfort zone. You know, it, it takes them into a new territory and they don't feel comfortable. So they want to, to avoid the, any uh, uh, controversial aspect of it. And, you know, there is also the connection to science fiction, the connection to uh, unidentified flying objects. My point about these issues is, you know, if you go back to ancient history, there were claims that the human body has a soul and therefore anatomy should not be allowed. But imagine if scientists would say, you know, the human body is a controversial subject. Some people claim that it has a soul. Therefore, we don't want to discuss it. Uh, where would modern medicine be? Uh, science actually has an obligation to address a subject of great interest to the public uh, and clear it up, you know, using the scientific method by collecting evidence. We should not be guided by prejudice. So I'm really surprised why the scientific community on this particular topic of searching for relics of other civilizations is exactly on the opposite side of where it should be. And, uh, you know, I'm getting uh, ridicule and uh, also, you know, personal attacks on a subject that is just, you know, following the scientific procedure should be mainstream. Um, yeah. the, the, the public funds science and uh, the public cares a lot about this subject because it will have huge implications for society. If Oumuamua, for example, was a technological relic, the question is what technology it is. Are we the smartest kid on the block? Maybe there is another civilization that existed before us that is much more advanced. There are lots of implications. And why would we avoid this subject uh, for fear of discovering the unknown? You know, that, that is not supposed to be the way science is done. Well, it's the thing, right? I mean, you know, science is about evidence, and we follow the evidence where it takes us. But there, there seems to be a notion right. here that I guess, depending on your hypothesis, it's almost as though the bar is set higher, in a way, yeah. right? That if you're going to propose exactly. something then, unusual or unorthodox, you, you have to come up with something something different. Yeah, exactly. So the, the statement often mentioned is uh, from Carl Sagan that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Now, the problem with this statement is that, first of all, it's not an extraordinary claim because we now know that about half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. We know it from... Uh, half a year ago from an analyzing uh, data from the Kepler satellite. And that means that not only we are not at the center of the universe, as Aristotle argued, but also our environment, you know, the, the Earth-Sun system is sort of typical. There is nothing special about it. So if you make, if you arrange for similar circumstances, you might get similar outcomes. I think it's arrogant of us to say that we are unique and special. So I don't regard the claim that we are not alone, that, that there used to be civilizations uh, that, that launched things like Voyager 1, Voyager 2, uh, New Horizons into their, uh, you know, space. Uh, I don't think that is extraordinary. That, that is just saying, you know, the same thing that we are doing, um, the same things are done by others because the circumstances are similar. Uh, and moreover, I think that, you know, extraordinary conservatism leads to extraordinary ignorance, if you look at the history of science. And so just not allowing any discussion on this and ridiculing it is the wrong attitude. Some important points. The book is called Extraterrestrial, the First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Professor Avi Loeb, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you for having me.
All the best. Uh, that is uh, Avi Loeb, Frank B. Baird, Jr., Professor of Science, Harvard University, Director of the Institute for Theory and Computation, Founding Director of the Black Hole Initiative, Chair of the Breakthrough Starshot Advisory Committee. The list goes on and on. As far as uh, CVs go in this realm, it's a pretty impressive one, which is why it has caused such consternation, perhaps, because Avi Loeb is a big figure in the world of uh, astronomy and astrophysics. So you can't just dismiss him as some crank. He might be wrong, but it's not enough to say, well, that's a, an absurd theory. What does the evidence tell us? So it's not just the book he's written. There were two pretty dense scientific papers he published. One he published uh, and then got some pushback, and he doubled down and said, no, look, here's my case. And so he's putting forth evidence in terms of explaining why this object behaved as it did. Because frankly, look, Maybe this isn't the explanation, but the other ones that have come, we've come up with aren't all that uh, compelling either. Not just in terms of compelling as a narrative, but just in terms of compelling as evidence. So we see comets, we see asteroids all the time, and they behave a certain way. This didn't behave like that. So how do we explain this? And, you know, ultimately, we may, we may never know because this object has, has sped off to wherever it was headed. So was this some weird piece of frozen gas? Was this some kind of space junk or a, a probe that was constructed by some civilization somewhere? I mean, ultimately, we, we may never know. But it is an interesting conversation about what we're prepared to entertain as options when it comes to explaining the unknown. And so Avi Loeb is uh, very much in the camp that we, we should not exclude these options. Maybe this wasn't alien technology that came zipping through our solar system, but why is it so controversial to put that on the table as we try to solve this mystery? Welcome to this hour of the program, Rob Breckenridge. Afternoons on 770-CHQR. Our number here, 403-974-8255. And uh, some time for your phone calls coming up. A lot of other stuff to get to today. At the top in this hour, though, the, the latest uh, pipeline flashpoint between Canada and the U.S. Now, certainly when it comes to Keystone XL, it appears as though Canada is conceding the point. This project's not going to go ahead, and, and that's that. But unfortunately, the trade-off isn't peace on the pipeline front because we got another big issue on our hands here, and it concerns Line 5, which is not a proposed pipeline project. It's one that's safely been operating for many, many years, connecting Canada to the United States, specifically connecting Canada to Michigan and then back into Canada via Sarnia. So this does indeed deliver a lot of energy products to the state of Michigan, uh, but it also delivers a lot of crude oil to both Ontario and Quebec. So it's not just Alberta that's uh, obviously concerned about the uh, state of uh, Line 5, but certainly Ontario and Quebec, or at least they ought to be, uh, because this would represent, I think, just over 40% of the crude oil going into Ontario and about 50% of what goes into Quebec via Alberta. So if this pipeline is shut down, we've got some big problems in this country. And if Michigan's governor has her way, that's exactly what will happen come May. Back in November, she revoked an important uh, easement for this, this pipeline, which allows it to cross a waterway. And again, there have been no issues with the pipeline crossing that waterway. But the, this pipeline could be shut down as of May. 
So it's not just a dispute between Enbridge, which operates this pipeline, and, and Michigan, although those are the two main players. This very much involves uh, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec, by extension, our federal government, which has promised to, to do whatever it can to keep this pipeline operational. And we do have some legal fallback here as, as a country, specifically a 1977 pipeline treaty. But joining us for some further thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dennis McConaughey, former executive with TransCanada, now TC Energy, 30 years in the Canadian energy industry. You can read more from him at doce.ca, Dialogues on Canadian Energy. More on his books, of course, his most recent breakdown, the pipeline debate and the threat to Canada's future. Dennis, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Okay, so there we go. We got you there, Dennis. Yes, can you hear me? Perfect. Yeah, we got you now. Appreciate you making yes, some time for us. Yes, it's always to be with you, Rob. Thank you. Well, we always appreciate your insight on this stuff. So, so first of all, how how dire is is this threat? How how real is the the prospect that Line Five could be shut down? Do you think? Well, uh, let's just put this into context. Uh, this is a pipeline that was built uh, in the nineteen fifties, has operated for over almost 70 years in its current configuration, which is an integral part of the now Enbridge, but formerly the provincial pipeline system that saw uh, one of its major access points into Canada come through a route that went across the upper peninsula of Michigan, across the Straits of Mackinac, through underground easement that is underground through that strait and into the upper peninsula of Michigan and then on into Sarnia. And that has operated really without any significant interest in terms of the strait crossing over those 65 years. About, I think, three or four years ago, there was an incident where an anchor was inadvertently dropped and dented part of this pipe, even though it was covered. Uh, and that is one of the pretexts that this current governor is using for wanting to basically cease the operations of the of the pipeline system. A pipeline system that not only brings the amount of crude oil that you talked about going into southern Ontario refineries, but also a significant amount of propane and butane into the state of Michigan itself. Yeah. So the, disrupting this existing pipeline operation uh, would be extremely disruptive. One other point to make in this is that Enbridge has been in the process of trying to essentially build a new tunnel where this pipe could be laid, an even more secure piece of infrastructure. So where things sit now is the governor has tried to assert her state jurisdiction to basically say the threat to the Great Lakes is too great and the state of Michigan is the custodian of the Straits of Mackinac, and she's going to cease operations. Enbridge has contested that she doesn't have the legal authority to do that. The issue is in front of the federal court, and a court decision is going to have to occur before the middle of May, which, if it doesn't intercede, the state edict to stop operations would presumably take effect. So this... Democratic governor uh, has decided to disrupt 65 years of relatively amicable um, relations between Canada and the United States, Canada, the province of Ontario, and the state of Michigan. So this is uh, really now a matter that's going to be 
judged really in the U.S. federal court. Yeah. And if some perverse outcomes happen there, um, well, uh, you know, there's not going to be any easy options for Canada if that happens. Well, and I, I think the government's preference is clearly that this can be worked out somehow, either between Enbridge and the state or, or through the courts, but there, there are no guarantees there. So beyond that, what kind of options do we have? What about, for example, the this treaty from 1977 that's supposed to stipulate that, that pipelines, uh, that they carry product to and from, you know, in between Canada and the U.S., that those be, be allowed to, to run essentially unimpeded then? Well, so first of all, Rob, my own view, for what it is worth, is that Enbridge probably has the better legal case and that the federal jurisdiction is going to be um, acceded to here and that the governor has overstepped. So I, so I think the first thing to reassure your listeners is that I think Enbridge does have the better legal case. However, there's always the possibility of some perverse ruling by some federal court judge who, um, despite those arguments, including that historic treaty, uh, may may not uh, actually come down on the side of continuity and uh, not creating havoc, as would be the case here, uh, if, if the operations were disrupted. But assume that that, if that happened. Well, Canada doesn't have any easy options at that point. Joe Biden, I'm guessing is uh, going to simply say, let the matter be resolved in the courts. Um, and I think you'll have a very difficult time interceding if the courts come out with a perverse outcome. Keep in mind also that his current Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, used to be the governor of Michigan That's and right. was the governor of Michigan when there was an oil spill on Line 5, not across the Straits of Mackinac, but at Kalamazoo. Michigan, which took several months and years, um, several weeks to actually clean up the the Mm -hmm. bill, but a lot of litigation and acrimony. So obviously Canada's in a very difficult position if there is a perverse legal outcome, because it's not clear to me exactly how Joe Biden intervenes against a court decision. So that, that leaves us in an awkward position, uh, as you say. And I, I know some of the companies involved uh, in, in supplying this pipeline, supplying these products, have been looking at uh, you know alternative plans, kind of yeah. backup plans. But, I, I mean, what, what options are there at that point? Well, so what would, what would undoubtedly be occurring is that there would be more <clears throat> supply to come through Line 6, which is the line that goes south of Michigan back into the uh, back into Canada and into Sarnia. The other part of the Enbridge infrastructure is that there would be more imports from Line 9, which basically is the eastern extension of the Enbridge system, uh, and you'd see more imports coming up through uh, essentially Montreal back into Ontario. And thirdly, there would be just more trucks moving more refined products from the U.S. refineries into Ontario until there might be some agreement struck uh, with the governor of Michigan to stand down from her position, even if she wins this legal case, which presumably uh, was you know, part of the election campaign that she ran on back in 2018. So, I mean, again, I think... It would be a cost to Canada, but Canada probably would find ways 
of getting incremental refined product demand into Ontario and parts of Quebec. So, but all at a cost and all at a you know, more energy areas between the two countries. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's really tough to build anything to Sarnia that doesn't go through the United States. But it, it is it, it does make for an interesting conversation, I think, because there's a perception in Alberta uh, that, that eastern provinces uh, don't buy energy from us and maybe a perception of those provinces that they don't need Alberta. But, you know, clearly we do export a lot to eastern Canada. Clearly they do rely on us. Is, is there any silver lining in, in all of this and at least, you know, better understanding of that reliance? Well, uh your point is very well taken. Uh, there's nothing that makes people more aware of what you lost until you've actually lo- lose it. So there's very much, you know, like Canadian oil supply into Ontario from Alberta occurs seamlessly and has done so for years and years because of the integrity of this Enbridge system for the most part. Uh, if that was disrupted, Ontario would feel it keenly. There would be, I think real resentment towards the United States uh, and really the state of Michigan as represented by Jennifer Whitmer's, um, or excuse me, uh, Gretchen Whitmer's uh, regime to actually be this disruptive. So, I mean, yeah, it would be a lesson in valuing what you had and perhaps a reflection on just how perverse these circumstances can be where a essentially technical issue about how risky and what is the risk of an oil spill just as a matter of pure insurance, like how big that risk is relative to the economic disruption you're going to cause by totally eliminating that risk. It's just not reasonable. And no other state government in Michigan for the prior seven years had ever indulged in that. We'll keep a close eye on this as we get closer and closer to this deadline. Much more is mentioned, D-O-C-E dot C-A, Dialogues on Canadian Energy. Uh, Dennis, again, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate yeah, I, I hope I was able to clarify a few points for people. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Yeah, thanks for that, Dennis. Appreciate it. Dennis McConaughey, former executive with TC Energy, uh, some 30 years in the energy business. And he's um, an author now, his most recent book, Breakdown, The Pipeline Debate and the Threat to Canada's Future. Also a visiting fellow of the Public Policy and Energy Studies School at Ivy Business School, University of Western Ontario. Or I guess just Western University, we call it now, right? So some interesting uh, insight from Dennis McConaughey on this whole situation. So at this point, this, this is all unresolved. So talk from the uh, federal government about doing all they can to save Line 5 is just that talk. I think, you you know, it's it's certainly a situation concerning a pipeline, no less, where Alberta's interests, Ontario's interests, and Quebec's interests align. There's certainly very little political downside for the Liberal government to go to the mat over this. But what can they do at this point? All right, welcome back. Rob Rickenridge with you here on a Monday afternoon as we uh, approach uh, one year of this uh, pandemic. I guess, I don't know when we mark the, the anniversary, but it was essentially March of last year. An opportunity to reflect back on, on how we responded and how we compared to two other countries, because given that it's a pandemic, we've got a lot of other countries to compare to. And unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot inspiring about Canada's response. I mean, we've done okay, maybe in some respects. But when you look at a couple of important uh, metrics, right? Health, on the health side, 
How did we do when it came to keeping the virus out, containing the virus, preventing illness, preventing death? Not so great. What about protecting the economy, protecting jobs? Again, not so great. So that brings us uh, to this next conversation here. The McDonald Laurier Institute has released uh, what it's calling its COVID Misery Index. It's a data analysis uh, led by our next guest, which you can read at uh, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Canada ranks 11th out of 15 countries in this index. So joining us uh, on the line, in fact, uh, from New Zealand, uh, where it's uh, early uh, tomorrow morning, country, by the way, that does pretty well in this ranking. Uh, Richard Otis joins us, Professor of Health Statistics and Economics in the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University uh, of Newfoundland, and is the lead methodologist uh, on this uh, report. Richard, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, great, Rob. Thanks, to, thanks for having me. Uh, so, by the way, you, you've been in New Zealand, I, I guess, just kind of resulting from this whole situation. You've been there for, uh, I guess, about a year now. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was. Uh, my family was here, and uh, basically, when lockdown was coming in last year, last year, I, I sort of beat it back from uh, from from Newfoundland to to get back here to be with my family, which, for what I thought would be a few months, and has turned out to be uh, longer than that. So, uh, yes. anyway, it's uh, so it's been interesting actually because you could, obviously I've, I'm sort of you know following very closely what's going on in Canada, but uh, but at the same time, sort of seeing how things have, have kind of played out down here as well, and we get all the news from Australia. So, so yeah, it's been it's, it's been interesting to see what's been going on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because it's not it's not a metric per se, but it does kind of relate to this report that if I think about where would I have rather been over the past 12 months? New Zealand's a country that comes to mind and not surprisingly, New Zealand's near, near the top of this list. But talk a bit about your approach here and the methodology behind this report. Yeah, well, again, the, the idea was to take a sort of broad look at, at the impact that uh, the COVID nineteen had on everybody, and, and and Lord knows around the world that it's you know it's heaped in it's heaped misery uh, on everybody. Um, but we you know we also know that it, it's been different in, in different places, and, and certainly you know my experiences here suggest that you know that and, and I think the, the numbers bear this out that you know that the, that the situation wasn't nearly as miserable here um, as it was in other places. And you know, to, and, and to be quite honest, you know, you felt quite guilty sometimes about how good we've had it. Um, and sort of recognizing that, you know, that, that, that the responses to this, which, uh, you know, were, were very uneven uh, across the world. And, and, of course, there's no, there's no playbook for this, right? I mean, we haven't really been through anything like this, um, you know, anything quite like this before. So, you know, there is, um, you know, there isn't sort of, you know, a, a playbook of this is what you do and this is how you do it. it everyone is kind of learning as we go. And, and we do see the different responses um, seem to yield quite different outcomes. And, and that struck me as being something quite interesting um, to study, you know, in a world that's sort of being, you know, being shaped by climate change and interconnectedness. You know, these kinds of things are going to happen again, and uh, you know, and and whether it's an economic challenge or whether it's a you know it's a, it's a climate related challenge, whether it's a health related challenge, and, and kind of learning the responses and the best responses that work um, seems to be an, you know an important outcome that can that can can emerge from this work. And if we if we don't take advantage of this opportunity, then we're really you know we're kind of well we're you know we're sort of you know failing to learn the lessons of history. So there's there's the disease misery uh, component to the, do these rankings, the COVID response misery, the economic impact misery. So, I mean, for example, on the, the disease misery itself, New Zealand far and away surpasses any other country on this list. But they're, they're not number one either. And there are other considerations here, too. So talk a bit more about that. No, that's right. 
That's right. And certainly, you know, here in, in, in New Zealand, uh, one thing we're, you know, and, and certainly our, our government's coming under some criticism uh, over the, you know, been very slow to respond to, to vaccines. Um, so, you know, while, you know, certainly, you know, looking at the, in the Northern Hemisphere countries, um, you know, looking, you know, that, that, that vaccine rollouts are going to be sort of near complete. You know, they're saying in the U.S., everybody that wants a vaccine should have it by July. Uh, here, you know, we're looking at quite a bit longer. So this, this, this sort of drags out our, our misery for that, you know, for that longer period of time. Uh, certainly here, uh, you know, a big, uh, a big part of the economy here is tourism uh, and international tourism in particular, and that's been just completely eliminated uh, as a result of this. And, and certainly, you know, some pressure from, you know, from businesses that are really barely hanging on, and, and many are not. Um, you know, to, to try to keep going and, and, and uh, you know, to, to, to get some sort of, you know, travel thing opened up. But that won't happen until we've got vaccines. So, again, that's an area where, you know, again, we've, we've controlled the disease well here. Vaccines, not so great. You know, I think you, you look at Canada, kind of a slightly different picture uh, that we see. You know, Canada, you know, obviously hit quite a bit more uh, harder, uh, quite a bit harder with the disease. But our, the vaccine rollout has been a little bit quicker. Uh, also, certainly, you know, not great by comparison to, you know, what's happening in particularly in the U.S. and the U.K., which are, you know, really sort of, you know, leading the world. In, in, in terms of getting vaccines and you know, getting shots into people's arms and, and recognizing that this was, you know, this is always going to be the way out of this vaccine, of this problem was, um, was going to be getting the population vaccinated. So a slow response to it is, is, is a little bit, um, you know, I think, you know, governments may, ha- you know, wave their hands a little bit at this, but we kind of knew this is what was going to happen. Um, and I think governments that have been slow to respond to, to the, the vaccine rollout, you know, should, you know, do need to be held to account for that. So by the way, so Norway is, is the number one country on this list, and, and you know, we don't talk a lot about Norway. We talk about New Zealand, Australia, they're on the list. Sweden we talk about, they're on this list. But what, what is it about Norway that stands out? Well, Norway is a really rich country, <laughs> and, uh, and that's really one of the things. The big things that they've been able to do is, you know, uh, we, they've been able to tap into their sovereign wealth fund um, and use, you know, and, and, and use that to, to essentially ride out the, the worst of the, the effects of the disease. So I think, you know, their, uh, you know, I think that their their population density helps them. I think they've got a, you know, very uh, they've had a very good public health response um, to the disease, but they haven't uh, had anything anywhere like the, you know, the economic fallout. Um, that we've had in uh, that we've had in uh, you know in, in, in certainly in Canada and, and, and other countries as well. So you know I think that they've been a real shining example of, of kind of how to manage uh, this kind of situation. And uh, but of course you know having a you know a, a massive sovereign wealth fund certainly help, has helped them along with that yeah. for sure. So in terms of Canada, Canada has mentioned eleventh uh, out of fifteen on this list. Canada is yeah. below the global average, and in all three of these categories, it's it's pretty uninspiring. So, what do you make of uh, the overall picture in Canada when when you look at it in the context of these metrics? Yeah, I mean, I think you. I mean, I said we very much try to look at it along the lines of the you know the areas that we examined. I think you know the public health response was was pretty good. Um, you know that that the disease didn't take hold in Canada the way it did, and certainly in the U.S. and a lot of the, you know the Western European countries. Uh, you know, I, I think the response has been you know has been a little bit meh. You know, in terms of uh, you know the, uh, the the testing was pretty good. Um, the stringency was you know we, we were pretty stringent. Maybe you know in some cases overly so, and and maybe didn't you know sort of maybe not quite as nuanced with that as as we could have been. Uh, the vaccines, you know, I, I think you know lots of people pointing to you know lagging behind, and certainly lots of stuff in the media around that right now that we we probably could have done a bit better there. Uh, the economic fallout is really what sort of jumps out at me, and and, and particularly you know the amount of the amount of money that we've borrowed, uh, you know the, the increase in public debt. 
the projected continual uh, continued increases in public debt that we're that we're going to see through 2021 and even potentially into 2022 as well. And and you know, and I think that that, that you know, there's going to be a significant you know debt to pay uh, you know to to get through this. And and uh, you know, it's 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 something that's going to be with us for a, for a very long time. And and you know, while we can debate whether it was a, you know the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, or you know, we can even sort of or or how much we should have spent, it, it doesn't change the fact that there's a debt to be repaid. Um, and uh, you know, and that's going to you know be something that's going to take you know many many years for us to to, to get pay, to pay down. And and in a situation where you know, I think that you know, say you know, if we look at through history, um, you know, these kinds of you know events, not not there's anything quite like this, but certainly economic shocks. Um, you know, these things happen frequently, and and you know, the more that we're you know our, our public borrowing is extended, um, the more difficult it's going to be for us to respond to, to future shocks. So you know, I think we have really. You know, kind of spent heavily on this one, and and um, and 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 I'm, you know, I I have some concerns about, you know, what this could mean going forward. You know, it's going to sting the pride of a lot of Canadians uh, because the United States ranks higher than we do on this list. Now, in terms of disease yeah. misery, sure, we've we fared a lot better in, in in that category, but overall, the U.S. does fare better than us here. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, I mean, in the U.S., you know, and I think that their their, their initial response was poor. Uh, their public health messages were were, were not good, uh, and that reflects, you know, that's reflected in the you know in, in the in, in the in the disease component of our of our index. Um, they're absolutely crushing it when it comes to vaccines. Uh, you know, they're you know they're, the vaccines are, are rolling out quickly, um, and you know the, the way that I've been sort of thinking about this is you know that you know the the, the runway to to, to to this thing coming to an end um, is much shorter in the U.S. than it is in Canada. You know that they're going to be you know they're basically going to be uh, fully vaccinated or as close to fully vaccinated as, uh, you know, everyone's going to have access to a vaccine, you know, by summer. Um, or that's what the, that's certainly what the numbers are looking like. Um, and we're going to be well behind that in Canada. And, you know, and, and that's something that, you know, again, we can fault the Americans for the initial response. Um, we can, you know, and, and there was a lot of sort of ham-handed, uh, you know, uh, approaches to dealing with this. But uh, I do think they've gotten vaccines right. And, uh, you know, and that's, I say that you know, I think we always knew this was going to be the way out. Uh, and they were prepared for this, and then they, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, that's what's helped them in in, in terms of the overall scores that they've, they've generated from uh, from our from our study. Well, it's pretty interesting. People can read it for themselves. McDonaldLaurier.ca, the uh, COVID misery index, it's called. Richard, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Uh, appreciate it. No trouble, Rob. Thanks so much. All the best, uh, Richard Otis, uh, yeah. on the line with us uh, from uh, New Zealand, where it is Tuesday, Tuesday morning. He's a professor of health statistics and economics, the faculty of medicine, Memorial University. But as he mentioned, been in uh, New Zealand the last year. So, like I said, a lot worse places you could be. New Zealand actually ranking second uh, overall on this list. So it's, it's an interesting list because it, it, it looks at various components to get a snapshot of all of it. So you've got Norway, as he mentioned, number one on this list, followed by New Zealand. Then rounding out the top 10, you've got Australia, Sweden, interestingly, number four, Japan, Germany, Switzerland, Netherlands, United States, Belgium. So Canada falling just outside of the top 10. Uh, We're ahead of Italy, France, UK, Spain. Again, not a lot to boast about here. So it's, it's something to think about because I would imagine that the next election will be, or maybe should be, about how this government responded to the pandemic. And I think this, this is an interesting way of looking at the big picture. And it's not, a, it's not a pretty one. It's not an inspiring one. It's certainly not something the government should be patting itself on the back over. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.